Kia ora, and welcome to episode four of the Sonic Speculations podcast. I'm your host, Nathaniel Otley, and I'm delighted to have as this episode's guest, Celeste Oram, a composer and musician of British and settler American heritage who grew up here in Aotearoa and has studied both at the University of Auckland and at UC San Diego. Celeste's works are scenarios in which performers and listeners explore sonic and social histories, microcultures, and utopias, encompassing instrumental writing, song and speech, electronics, visual media, theater, and improvisation, Celeste's work has been recognized in the awarding of the 2017 Cannes Trust Fund Award, as well as nominations for the 2020 and 2014 Sounds Contemporary Award, and the 2016 Kranich Stein Prize from the Darmstadt Summer Courses for New Music, whose jury described her work as strangely entertaining, engaging with history in a striking manner, and utterly relevant. Celeste's works have been made with the support and partnership of musicians and ensembles, including the New Zealand Symphony Orchestra, Auckland Philharmonia Orchestra, NZSO National Youth Orchestra, Birmingham Contemporary Music Group, NZ Trio, the American Modern Opera Company, Arcus Collective, Stroma, Longleash, Wasteland, Auto Duplicity, Stephen Schick, Stephen De Pledge, Calathumpian Consort, Song Company, Sydney Piano Trio, Karl Heinz Company, Intrepid Music Project, and presented in programs including the San Diego Symphony's Hearing the Future Festival, the Darmstadt Summer Courses for New Music, the New Zealand International Arts Festival, the Summer Institute for Contemporary Performance Practice at the New England Conservatory, the Soundscape Festival, and the Melbourne Fringe Festival. Our conversation today touches on a wide range of Celeste's music and interests and includes a particularly interesting discussion of Celeste's work around New Zealand's radio history, which coincides with the 100th anniversary of New Zealand's first radio broadcast this month. One note, in the interview, we mistakenly reference the writing of Irene Beaumarchais when the name we should actually have said is Irene Beautre. As always, if you enjoy this interview, please like, rate, review, and indeed share. As is always the case, you can find a list of links to recordings, websites, and other material of interest in the episode description. And if you'd like to, please get in touch, sonicspeculations at gmail.com. And I'm joined now by Celeste Oram. Kia ora, Celeste. Kia ora, Nathaniel. Great to talk to you. So I'd like to start by asking you to give a brief um, description of the journey that you've been on with in your own composition. Where, where did that start and, and where is that now? Yeah, well, I guess um, the the sort of shorthand way to describe it is to describe it in terms that are familiar to both of us, which is that um, the university has been a, a major kind of touchstone for me for many years of my composing life, but that's not where it began and that's not where it is now. Um, like you, I studied composition as an undergraduate um, at the University of Auckland. Um, but if I were to rewind even further, I was... You know, it depends what counts as composing <laughs> in terms of the question, when did you start composing? Um, like most children, you know, you kind of make up tunes and new verses to the wheels on the bus and all that kind of thing. And um, But then it was in high school, I guess, that, you know, we had music projects where we were assigned to write things down, um, which sort of changes the game conceptually. Um, and I was really lucky that APO, the Auckland Philharmonia Orchestra, as they continue to do, had all sorts of amazing projects for students in schools um, where their players would play music. Um, and so that was always really thrilling um, to hear wonderful musicians sort of making great music out of anything you threw at them. Um, 
but yeah, but then I studied um, composition among other things at the University of Auckland um, and then took a couple of years off to kind of work part-time, compose part-time, get my thoughts in order um, and apply for graduate schools in the United States, um, which I did. And then I started a PhD at the University of California, San Diego in 2014. And now for the past year or so, I've, um, I don't know, apparently I'm a freelance composer now, which is strange because, you know, and I often say this to people like, honestly, honestly, there was never a day when I woke up and I was like, I'm going to be a composer. Um, I just, there was a trail of breadcrumbs that I followed and, and here I am. So that, yeah, that's as short as I can tell the story, I think. <laughs> Very good. Um, so you mentioned uh, the university as a sort of a, a thing that has been common throughout your career thus far. How, how does that, how has that academic environment been important for your composition? Yeah, well, in very practical ways. Um, and the first and I think most important thing for me is about being in a community of other musicians and other artists. Um, that was absolutely the case for me at the University of Auckland um, and then very much so again in San Diego. Um, yeah, I just had such a great time kind of interacting with my fellow students at the University of Auckland that when it came time to choosing grad schools in the States, I knew that that was still a top priority. I wanted to go somewhere where I would learn as much from my fellow students as from any professor. Um, so I was sort of deliberately like trying to get a sense of the student, like the vibe of the student body at all the schools I applied to and, and UCSD was the clear winner um, in that front. So I felt really, really privileged to be able to join that community. And then, you know, it's also when it comes to grad school in the States, it, there's a very practical bottom line, which is money that, you know, in that program it is a job. Composing becomes a job because you have a stipend, you have a paycheck, you are expected to produce work as well as teach and do all sorts of other things that part being part of an academic community involves um, and having that time and that focus is a hugely transformative privilege um, to you know support one's work yeah so you mentioned finding a, a body of, of uh, students in that, that context who are you know supportive and you can learn from a lot of your work is very open and collaborative in nature does that is that sort of, does that grow out of that common interest? Yeah, I would say so. You know, when, when you're among musicians whom you respect and admire a lot and like you want to learn from them, that was my experience. You know, I felt like I have so much to learn from these other folks. And so how, you know, how can I devise scenarios where we're basically learning together? Um, yeah, I mean, in a sense, the for me, part of being in grad school, like it did feel like a kind of apprenticeship in the sense that the pieces I was producing, it was like, let's try things. Like I have things I want to try. They may work, they may not work, but like we'll figure that out by doing it. Um, and so in that sense, it was really great to, to do that work together because you know what they say about many heads being better than one. So in that context, how do you start to come up with the idea for a piece? Does the, does, is there an idea first or is it through discussion and collaboration that that comes together? Yeah, that's a great question. It's I find it really hard to generalize about stuff because I, I feel like I'm just trying, you know, each piece is trying something new and is responding to very different circumstances. So if, if there is a generalized way of answering that question is to say, um, 
that like I, I really try to look at the context of every you know situation that I enter into as a composer who's involved what, what's it for um, who's it for who's going to be listening at the other end um, but yeah I mean do you have any particular pieces you want to ask about maybe or um, I mean I'm thinking thinking of um, I mean something like television man when you where that's all very you know there's a lot of background work that you have to do before even getting to you know the writing there's lots of uh, visual media or things like that um does the visual media in that context come first or um is that yeah. ongoing bits here and bits there yeah often well as was the case with with television man there's kind of a um like a, a hypothesis, you know, there's something I want to try with integrating visual, you know, or digital media into performance. So with that piece, it was like, okay, well, if there's a live violinist, there's a live here, and then there's a video here. And what are the various ways in which those two apparitions can interact? And because I was always already thinking about like, you know, the, the camera and the screen as being this object that can bring almost infinite kind of scenarios and images into a concert hall which is otherwise sort of a bit hermetically sealed and like you know trying to play with that um that relationship so yeah that's that's how that all began and you know and then from there we kind of looked at the television at uh, the television man the telemann duet um and you know the different movements of because it's a dance suite right there's a jig and and stuff and and so you know thinking about the baroque dance suite and the character of these different dancers and how that might kind of influence the um you know the digital live interaction as well yeah so that piece and other pieces i mean i'm thinking a loose affiliation of alleluia's draws on quite a lot of material from across different centuries particularly um baroque and and earlier sort of music how do you negotiate that sort of thing and what do you see bringing those um either quotes or pieces or anything like that what do you see that bringing to your work yeah well I more and more I'm really interested in kind of trying to unpick like the the craft of composing and you know I'm, I'm a little bit I, I use the word technique with the kind of conscious um caution because I think, you know, talking about compositional technique is something that is often spoke of in very serious terms. And that's kind of always implies a bit of gatekeeperiness, you know, like does this, does this composer have technique, you know, have the requisite technique or, you know, tasteful technique or so on and so forth. But I think at the end of the day, like technique is just a way of doing things. And so in that sense, everyone has technique because that's the only way that you can get things done. Um, and, you know, looking historically at the way that composers have learned how to compose is also really interesting to me. Because, I mean, this is, maybe you kind of have some thoughts on this too, Nathaniel, but as I ap approach the end of my PhD, where I was like, okay, this is the end of the road. Apparently I'm supposed to have learned everything there is to learn by now um, about composing and thinking, but like, wait, what have I learned? And how do you teach composition and like what is the actual stuff of being taught you know like you can teach someone how to like cook a dish and you can teach someone how to expand quadratic equations but 
what does it mean to teach composing? And so anyway, I was, I'm very interested in like historical treatises, like, you know, all these very kind of trad, gratis ad panasum kind of textbooks about like, this is how you do counterpoint. Um, and, you know, counterpoint especially, I'm really intrigued by the way that it is, it's kind of Sudoku, you know, it's like, there is, there's a formula to it, and that's not at all to belittle it, you know, say, oh, it's merely formulaic. But it, it for me, it really does illustrate the ways in which musical logic, you know, follows patterns and, you know, and so you're always kind of trying to, as a composer, you know, you have to work with those patterns, even if you're working against them at the same time. Um, okay, this is a very rambly thing. What am I trying to bring this back to? Historical music, right. So with um, a loose affiliation, you know, I, I was kind of like, I want to try doing counterpoint like I want to get myself in this world of technique and the technology of counterpoint and it's gonna it's gonna sound different when I do it because I'm not living in the you know 16th century um but that's cool that's interesting because at the same time I'm a person who's absorbed all that technique in a kind of filtered and imperfect way you know I as a choral singer I sing all this music that comes from this counterpoint. So like there's, I have this weird feeling in which like there's a, a cathedral in my voice and my voice has intuitively been taught how to sing as if it were in a cathedral because there's centuries of repertoire that's built to do that. And anyway, all these kinds of feedback loops um, was was just kind of a world that I wanted to, to roam around in for a bit. And so that's where that piece comes from. You mentioned earlier you did a number of things in your undergrad at, at University of Auckland. Do you see all those interests as feeding into your music? Yeah, totally. And that's also what I mean when I say, you know, there was never a day, honestly, where I woke up and I was like, I'm going to be a composer. Because when I was an undergrad, I was studying composition and I was very invested in that. I also was um, attempting to study flute um, to varying degrees of success because my time usually got spent elsewhere. Um, and I was studying drama, I was studying German and then like German literature and poetry and film and stuff that was all part of that course. And when it came to the end of my undergrad, I guess for whatever reason, I thought that grad school was the next step. Um, and, and there was kind of a, there was like a hot minute there where I was maybe going to do a graduate degree in musicology. Because um, I was very fortunate to have really amazing musicology professors, Davinia Caddy, um, Dean Sutcliffe, those folks at University of Auckland. Um, and, you know, that, that really deep critical study of music and culture and those relationships was fascinating to me. Um, but in kind of looking at what that would involve on a day-to-day -day level, and then comparing that with the you know, thrilling, energizing, creative projects that I had been involved in as a composer and as a drama student and so on. Like, I didn't want to give that up. And so there was, you know, in these two years that I took off between finishing undergrad and starting grad school, I was kind of like, what, like, how do I do this? How do I be creative, make new art with awesome colleagues and awesome friends, you know, ideally in this perhaps kind of collaborative or at least collegial relationship that was so great about like drama um, and you know an opera in that world um, but how do I also engage with these sort of critical questions of the relationship between music and culture and media and technology and stuff um, and I was like do I 
become an opera director could like there's this apparently in Europe there's this job you can do called a dramaturg and I didn't really know what that was but it sounded kind of interesting anyway for whatever reason it became clear that like being a composer that job title or at least that line of study or what that graduate program would look like would give me the most latitude to keep doing kind of all those things at once um and I think I made the right decision even though even though it's kind of left me in this funny place where like I'm not sure if what I do all the time is composing but I still feel comfortable calling myself a composer You've used radios before in a number of your works. Um, what is it about the radio that you find so interesting to work with? I'm, I keep discovering new things that I, I love about it, but I'll try to give a vaguely um, chronological account. Um, for me, the you know my real kind of obsession with radio began when I started working on this project around Vera Wise Monroe. And that came about because Eve DeCastro Robinson and Alex Taylor were doing this concert series in Auckland called Hearsay. And is that what they, yeah, I think that's what they were calling it at the Tim Melville Gallery. And they had asked me to write a piece for this new series. And it was about a year after I had moved to San Diego. Um, and this was great. I was super excited to support even Alex. And there was something strange. And I think this is a, a feeling that's maybe familiar to some other kind of expats that you go overseas and you kind of become a New Zealander in a very conspicuous way that you were never really used to before or for whatever reason like it being overseas actually made me kind of rethink my um, relationship to kind of narratives of New Zealand culture um, and I was also had been really inspired by this project by um, an Irish composer, Jennifer Walsh, um, who um, has kind of you know, wrote, written a book and like um, devised this wonderful kind of alternative history of Irish experimentalism. I think some of them, she even calls them Irish Dadaists. Um, that is sort of somewhere between history and fiction you know like in this book there are real photographs that are really from the 1920s or whatever but have captions that are completely fictitious um so when even Alex asked me to write a piece I kind of felt like I wanted to do something similar and like implant something in you know what is so often a very kind of patrilineal narrative of New Zealand musical culture certainly at like a big institutional level um and, you know, after some, you know, then like flurry, <laughs> fast forward several months, um, Vera Wiseman Monroe is this um, radio ham, right? An amateur radio operator from sort of like um, early 20th century New Zealand, whose presence or whose suggestion as a historical figure um, might in some ways kind of rewrite the narrative about um, who is responsible for culture in New Zealand and how that has interacted with the formation of nationalism, especially through the medium of radio, um, which kind of in this, from what I understand, like this rapid flash in historical terms, like all at once kind of connected New Zealand 
to the world um, such that you know it was sort of a remote island nation no longer and so any perpetuation of the sort of remote island nation narrative was kind of a strategic you know it was more like a strategic hangover than actually what was going on um, anyway so I just found that the history of radio in New Zealand really fascinating and especially um, the history of amateur radio because um, that kind of uh, goaded me into trying to build radios um, you know following old circuit diagrams and I hadn't really had any um, meaningful uh, training in or experience with electronic music so I was a bit anxious about this at first because I was kind of like well I'm not a techie person I don't really know how this how to do this but um, but I had some great help from some folks in San Diego um, and it was also kind of intuitive and like immediate in this really thrilling way like you hook wires together and you coil enough of it around a cylinder and then like boom you're listening to the radio and it was just kind of magical and like wait what I made that like it doesn't even have a battery how's this working um, so so that was quite thrilling as well um, there's so much more I could say that's kind of just the origin story as best as I can recall it that was six years ago yeah I mean feel free to keep going I mean you you've got had a number of works that use radio in various different ways um do you want to maybe link link it to link it into some of the other work that you've done yeah absolutely because then there was the um the piece I did for the NYO in 2017 um and you know I I'm always I feel like this is a big thread in my recent work like I'm so interested in institutional histories and whenever I write a piece you know it's never just for orchestra generally it's like but but who is this orchestra um and so you know the the NYO the National Youth Orchestra has a very particular character and as a kind of offshoot of the New Zealand Symphony Orchestra that has a very particular character as well it began life as the New Zealand Broadcasting Corporation Symphony Orchestra or something like that um playing on radio um you know so there was this like the 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 history and the culture of orchestras in New Zealand is that, you know, there was a time when a New Zealander was more likely to have heard an orchestra on the radio than they were to have heard it in a concert hall. So, you know, like the, the New Zealand history of the orchestra is as this kind of like disembodied, like technologically mediated musical force. Um, and so I kind of wanted to, um, you know, reference that history um, with the NYO piece, which meant kitting out every player on stage with their own battery-powered radio, their own little FM radio, um, which I, I don't think I was fully anticipating what a fantastic sonic illusion that is. Because when you have 73 discrete sound sources, I mean, it's, they're all playing the same thing, right? But, you know, we're so used to kind of hearing electronic sound like coming from a speaker or even just like a stack it's still like a very directional thing but suddenly you have the whole Michael Fowler singer stage that's all just like radiating no pun intended um sound and it's really spooky because suddenly like the sound isn't coming from anywhere it's almost as if it's all in your head but it's also a very external thing so anyway that was really exciting and then 
I kind of got so captivated by that sonic experience of like huge, um, substantially spatialized radio. And I had 50, 70 radios <laughs> that I got for this piece. Um, so then I, then kind of the next apparently logical step was to make um, a piece for Steve Schick, who is a percussionist, in which he is kind of um, encased by a circle of radios that are hanging from the ceiling and um, again kind of like emanate this mysterious sound. So you mentioned this idea of being interested with with history and New Zealand history and some, some of your work or a lot of your work recently has been interested in ideas of uh, New Zealand's settler and colonial history um, and speculated on, on ideas that are decolonial or anti-colonial in nature. How do you bring that to a, a scenario or a compositional process? Yeah, I'm trying to find a way into this question because it's a big one. Um, when I was at the New Zealand Choral Federation Symposium a couple of months ago, um, which was a lovely event, and uh, one of the guest artists was Horomono Horo, um, talking about his Taungaporo practice. And um, what really struck me about sort of one of the main themes of his lecture, and this is sort of me paraphrasing him, but this is what I understood, was kind of his emphasis on in his own work of kind of where you come from as an artist and, um, you know, the traditions that inform your decisions as an artist um, and that kind of shape your practice. And I thought that was a, a really important point to make at a conference like a choral symposium because, you know, choral music is a really particularly defined culture and practice. Um, but it, but the, the history of that practice, um, you know, the particular values that shape it can often be kind of invisibilized. Um, you know, we kind of take it for granted as like, this is what choral music is, you know, like this is what it means to come together and, and sing, even though that, you know, there's a choral tradition that's like very much coming from this kind of Anglo, you know, church choir, even if not currently religiously affiliated, um, sort of, you know, historical lineage. Um, so I feel like, you know, and that also kind of resonated with what I feel like I'm trying to do, and I mentioned this before, like institutional histories, about kind of, try, maybe it's a bit, um, what am I trying to say? Maybe it's a bit like stating the obvious, but but I think there's so much about the the way that that music is done, you know, as like a social practice, as a cultural practice, um, that I find it's really important not to take those ways of doing for granted, right? There are reasons that we have arrived at those ways, and and crucially, they're not the only way that things could be done, and so. Yeah, I feel like that's so often kind of my way into a, a piece is just in a way taking this journalistic approach and being like, well, but why do we do these things the way we do? Like, why does this institution work the way it does? Why does it have the values it does? What 
do those values kind of reproduce um, and uphold? And then how can this piece kind of point to those things, perhaps in a very obvious and deliberate way, um, but in pointing to them also kind of like prod at them um, and, and maybe start to kind of unravel things a little bit. So you've had a multi-collaborative project, Totito Tito. How did that come about and, and what is that project about? Yeah, so that uh, this follows on nicely from the last question because that project in my mind is kind of about two things. Ostensibly, it's about the, you know, an exploration of musical histories of Aotearoa, New Zealand. But it's also a piece that kind of, the piece it became was so shaped by the context it was made for, and that was the Darmstadt Summer Courses, um, which is a very particular institution and a very particular environment that, as I said before, is what it is because of some extremely precise historical factors and personalities and values and so on and so forth. And, um, you know, that's another thing that I, I, I really appreciate this perspective that I, I think I have as a New Zealander coming to Europe, you know, like being kind of an outsider and seeing all the ways in which this European culture, which, you know, in so many ways is um, kind of held up as being normative in a way, is actually incredibly strange. Um, and I really love trying to advertise how strange Europe is. Um, so, um, yeah, again, how do, how do I kind of do this chronologically? Um, I guess one way of sort of describing the project would be that like, there's, there's a European modernist way of doing experimentalism and doing kind of quote unquote new things. Um, but there are other ways of doing experimentalism and um, and so that's, that's kind of what the Toti Toti thing was about. It was, I was kind of like, well, who, I just wanted to bring my friends to Darmstadt, <laughs> um, in a way, because, you know, I had this commission, which meant like money and that was cool. And so I was like, what do I spend this money on? Like I'll spend it on my friends. You know, some people spend their money on helicopters, um, but, but anyway, but I was like, I'm going to spend it on plane tickets, which is, I guess, kind of still a helicopter. But anyway, so um, that was, yeah, that was kind of where that came from. What already existed when the opportunity to make that piece came about was the whole Vera Wiseman Road project, which in a way kind of matched, that makes it sound very formulaic, but a historical moment, right, like post-World War One modernity with a, let's call it a musical medium, which was radio. And so I kind of started thinking about this show as like a, like a TV series, like a mini series. So what other historical moments can we match with other musical cultures? And, um, one of my favorite museums in the world is the Matakohe Kauri Museum in Northland. Um, because it's just like, it has so many weird and wonderful things telling the kind of 
history of labor and colonization in Aotearoa and especially Northland and so especially like Cody logging and you know swamp Cody you know gum digging and and all that kind of stuff and like you know the the machinistic technological transformation for better or worse of the landscape and there were so many just like cool and quirky things in that museum like there was a photograph of this gum digger who was very old and he was standing outside the hut that he had made for himself and there was this caption under the photograph that was like bizarrely poetic even though it didn't intend to be you know how museum captions can be like that a bit sometimes um you know and it said something along the lines of like you know this cody digger has grown old this is his home that he has made he will die here because he is too old to leave and that was so heartbreaking and and it was like there's there's a song in that photo and in that man um and doing a bit of digging i did a bit of digging at the archives in the alexander turnbull library in wellington um i am giving you such roundabout curlicued answers and i hope you can edit something but anyway in the um maybe that's that's kind of part of the answer in itself in the turnbull library there is a box um that comes from the collection of elsie Locke, who was a fantastic um woman in early 20th century New Zealand. She was kind of a labor activist, you know, union person. And I think she kind of founded, oh gosh, I don't want to get this wrong. She was influential, I think, in the founding of Plunkett or, or some kind of like really important like women's healthcare, um, family planning type stuff in New Zealand. And for whatever reason, also as part of her life, she collected folk songs and lyrics of folk songs and like all sorts of paraphernalia to do with folk music of New Zealand and it's all in a box in the Alexander Turnbull Library and this box was just magical as you can probably imagine um, and just so much stuff just kind of you know comes leaping off the page through the dust at you um, so that was a very exciting box um, there was another box of in the Turnbull Library of uh, papers and paraphernalia pertaining to Richard Fuchs who was a composer who was born in Germany in Karlsruhe um, and ended up in New Zealand as a refugee fleeing the Nazis um, and you know but then because of the kind of alien um, laws enacted during New Zealand in World War II was then also kind of ostracized in New Zealand uh, his, his work is kind of getting some attention recently which is um, which is exciting and it's just so interesting as this kind of like parallel and completely opposed musical narrative to like say for example Douglas Lilburn you know the the two of them are kind of contemporaries and they both happen to end up in New Zealand you know because of kind of patterns of migration and you know colonial migration um and then here they are kind of side by side operating in completely different musical universes and being received by a public in very different ways um so yeah, so those were some threads that kind of became Totito Tito um, slash, you know, the English title of which Disputation Songs. Um, and sort of there were lots of episodes, as I mentioned, each kind of, um, you know, speculatively combining a 
historical period um, from New Zealand with a, you know, a kind of musical practice or, or a culture or tradition um, as these little kind of snapshots and just sort of ways into obviously what is a much vaster history. Um, and then a really significant collaborator for that project was Rob Thorne, a Tonga portal practitioner. Um, and conversations with Rob, you know, when we sort of started, you know, talking about what could we make together, um, unexpectedly, but quite wonderfully, got us way, way, way back in time, by which I mean like 18th century um, and back in Germany. Um, which kind of brought the whole thing full circle in this interesting way. Um, you know, we'd always kind of, it had always been this funny thing about like, well, why are Germans so, you know, charmed by New Zealand? And, you know, that's got more, that's not just because of Lord of the Rings, like that kind of goes back centuries um, and it goes back to their colonial fascination with exploration and that, you know, is why German museums are full of so many artifacts um and so that um yeah that kind of like late 18th century enlightenment moment in german musical history um and austrian uh viennese really um you know as kind of bringing you know putting that in dialogue with tongue puro um was felt felt like a really rich and challenging and provocative um, site of exploration. Any upcoming projects that you have that you want to want to talk about or that are particularly occupying your interest at the moment? Yeah, so there's one um, with radios and there's one without radios, which would you like to hear about? <laughs> We've talked a bit about radios, so let's, yes. let's hear more about radios. Oh, more about radios. Oh, okay. Um, I am um, making a piece for a really awesome ensemble. Um, they are based in Berlin, um, but three or four of their members are originally from Iceland. And well, this is a nice sec as well because that project came about because two of the four of Ensemble Adapter, that's what they're called, were at the show in Darmstadt um, and really dug it, which is very sweet of them. And they were like, can you make a sequel with us that's kind of about Iceland as well as New Zealand? <laughs> um, and I was like, awesome, let's do it. And I will say, because this is important to sort of, you know, be honest about these things. So that was in 2018 when we were like, let's make a piece. And now it's almost the end of 2021 and it's finally happening. So, you know, it, good things take time. And it just took us a lot of unsuccessful grant applications before doing the successful one that is making it happen so that's the way it goes um but it's kind of a nice coincidence because i right now i'm speaking to you from copenhagen in denmark i'm here for another project but um but it also kind of squares this strange polygon shape <laughs> sort of between new zealand iceland and denmark because there's also a really interesting I, this is just like a weird, boring, piecemeal amateur history lesson. That's kind of what this feels like. Um, but anyway, there is a really interesting kind of migratory and trade and, you know, colonial history between Denmark and Iceland. And in fact, just this morning, I was at this museum in Copenhagen that's the North Atlantic 
museum. And so it's a museum about the kind of interconnected history between Denmark and its colonial outposts in the Faroe Islands and Greenland, and then also Iceland. Um, so there was interesting stuff there about like all the whale blubber and um, fish and dried fish and wool and like all these commodities that kind of, you know, were going back and forth the Atlantic. And, um, but, but so, yeah, that piece is a so quartet, there's four of them in ensemble adapter, flute, clarinet, harp, percussion, and then they all have radios. But these are not just any old radios. Another collaborator I brought on board is Zach Argerbright, composer in, based in Wellington. Um, composer and kind of technologist, and so Zach is building um, these one-of-a-kind quirky little radios for the project. Um, yeah, when I first tried to explain it to Zach, I was like, kind of think like Wally, but it's a radio instead of a robot, but they're kind of cute and maybe a bit anthropomorphized and, and you know, four different like characters. Um, so there's like a furry radio that is like knitted little cute merino Icelandic woolen sweater. And, and then there's another one that's kind of made of the insides of my Walkmans that I had as a teenager and are now just useless pieces of junky toxic plastic. There's a lot of that in each of our pasts, I think. <laughs> um, so yeah, so that's that's the next immediate next project. So on to the final set of questions I have for you. Uh, where do you go to be creative? Is there a particular space for you that has been particularly creatively productive, or do you find changing space more a more productive way of working? Hmm. I really like the floor. I, I will often lie down on the floor. Like if I'm having a bit of a crisis um, and I don't know what to do next, I lie on the floor and I think it through on the floor. I often sing to myself while lying on the floor. I have to be alone, obviously, otherwise that would be weird. Something just kind of like lying down, it just makes my brain work differently. Like, you know, sitting at a desk, especially if there's a computer in front of you, it's like, it makes you think too hard. It makes you think too thinkily, but you know, lying down, just kind of, you can imagine things for me. <laughs> so have are there, you've mentioned a lot of performances, performers, collaborators, um, are there any, any others in particular that you've worked with that stand out as particularly creatively generative? Oh yeah, I mean, because we've done so many projects together, um, Kira Gogol is a really important collaborator. Obviously, we've done, I think, at, at least three, well, four, five. We've done a lot of projects together. Um, and, you know, we we make performances together, but we've also, like, written articles and, you know, we kind of think, think together through things in a really um, important way. Um, also, I mean, another uh, dear friend and much admired composer is Alex Taylor and we've again worked together on a couple of projects. He was a really important part of Totito Tito. Um, and yeah, just really trusted, um, kind of uh, confidant and colleague. Um, so many more, I get nervous dropping names because I mean realistically I, there are like a hundred people who I hold very dear. Um, yeah. Absolutely. So um, 
any particularly memorable strange experiences as a composer? Memorable strange experiences. Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, one time there was a concert, I'd written a piece for this project that was about Karl Marx. I mean, it was for the occasion of Karl Marx's 250th birthday. And it was fascinating. It was a really amazing project to be a part of. But then there was this really funny irony when it got to the public performance at the end of it, because it was in this palace in Trier, which is the birthplace of, of Karl Marx. And it was this like extravagant aristocratic palace with gilded stuff everywhere and frescoes. And I was like, wait, wait, did you read the book? <laughs> Anyway, that that was just kind of amusing. It was it was effective. Um, yeah. Any memorable non-composer jobs? Non-composer jobs. What have my non-composer jobs been? Um, they're always still musical. Does that count? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, when I was um, when I was taking a very important and much needed kind of gap, eighteen months after undergrad, um, I was teaching piano to kids, like beginner piano, because I'm not a very good piano player. Um, but that was really, that was really great, because when you're working with kids, there's some extent to which it's kind of got nothing to do with music. Or like, I mean, it just makes you completely rethink, like, what, what are musical values, and what are musical values for me, and what are musical values for a six-year-old. Um, and I just, I always loved the first piano lesson, you know, when you have a new student and it was just like, so, I just cherished every one of those because it's so magical when there's this, it, it, it always taught me so much because it made me unlearn everything I take for granted about a piano, you know, like this is high and this is low and there is a high and a low and, you know, the way you touch it makes it sound different and you know just that became this kind of totally fresh exploration yeah I loved it it was hard work but there were some moments <laughs> yeah those 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 experiences are often often teach you as much about those assumed things you were talking about earlier and and with regards to music and you go yeah actually that's kind of strange um yeah. and any reading recommendations you would make anything you've read recently that, that you particularly recommend I think I read recently. Um, I read way more non-fiction than I would like, you know, like it's a lot of journal articles and, you know, scholarly books, which is great, but I wish I could read more fiction. You know what? I had a really cool time a couple of months ago when I had been asked to write a song um, and so in preparation for that, I was reading a lot of poetry because I was trying to find a poem. And that's something I sadly never really do, like at a stretch, you know, I was reading poetry for like a week. Um, but it was amazing. I was like, I need to make this part of my diet. Because there was something, you know, when you read a lot of poetry, you read a lot of poetry and some of it's great and some of it kind of, you know, you can take it or leave it. But for me, that was very motivating because it's that that nice feeling of like I could do that you know like I maybe wouldn't be very good at it at trying to write poetry um but 
you know, but it kind of it felt very inviting to just like think about the world in a different way. And I was reading New Zealand poets because that was part of the um, that was um, yeah. Who were some poets I really loved? Joe Randerson, um, Irene Beaumarchais, um, like really awesome kind of lyrical poems that like rhymed, and I was like, oh yeah, rhyming is fun. Yeah, they they really interested me. And that's us for today's episode of Sonic Speculations. I'd like to thank Celeste for her time. And as always, if you'd like to see and know more, there are a variety of interesting links in the episode description related to today's interview. If you've made it this far and haven't already, please consider rating, reviewing, subscribing, and or sharing this episode. And I'll be back next time with another episode of Sonic Speculations.